Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series held on January 24, 2018, focusing on the new U.S. interest expense limitations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a PwC tax principal and leader of our Washington National Tax Services International Tax Service Practice. Rebecca Lee, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues. Krishnan Chandrasekhar, a PwC tax principal and our Global Financial Services and Financial Transactions Transfer Pricing Leader. And Eileen Fine, a director focusing on international tax issues. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the broader implications of the interest expense limitation, including globally, and impact on Treasury functions. Okay, so we will now move to our interest expense limitation, broader, uh, broader implica- implications. So we're going to talk about its interaction with the rest of tax reform. Right, so a little bit about B, right? <laughs> um, and I think this is probably has more implications for inbound than outbound um, is um, my experience thus far. Oh, but the um, base case... Uh, it's only the actual deduction that you're allowed that could potentially be a base eroding payment for BEAT purposes. But there is a coordination rule, and the way that the coordination rule works is, is it's not friendly, right? It, it's an unfriendly taxpayer rule because you need to allocate first to your third-party interest expense and then to your related party interest expense. So very basic example you have $100 of interest expense, 50 is related, 50 is unrelated. Let's say your limitation is 20, so you could take 20 and then 80 is your disallowed amount. You would first allocate the 50 of third party to the 80 that was disallowed. And then the remaining 50, um, right, you would take 30 and allocate that to the rest of the 80. And then what's left is 20 and 20, um, which is your allowed amount under 163J, also happens to be allocated to a related party payment for beat purposes. Um, so that that full 20, which was your allowed amount under 163J, is also subject to beat and is considered a base eroding payment that needs to be taken into account when calculating your modified taxable income. Um, but more on that next week in our beat <laughs> class. Um, other provisions that impact that could impact 163J, uh, guilty and FDII, um, no guidance, right? I mean, there's just there, there's no clear rule on how to coordinate between 163J, FDII, and guilty. I, I think the slightly easier one to look at is um, taking into account your guilty inclusion and your FDII inclusion as um, taxable income when you're computing adjusted taxable income for 163J purposes just because there's nothing that would um, carve out guilty and FDII inclusions unless you considered guilty and FDII as investment income, which as we've kind of talked about this whole time, a corporation really isn't going to have investment income. Um, so we do think that those inclusions would be part of your, um, your, your taxable income for purposes of 163J. On the reverse side, um, you do also have to look at taxable income when you're looking at your 250 deduction for guilty and FDII. And it, it's really what comes first, right? And we, we don't know 
Um, hopefully Treasury will just tell us that one provision <laughs> comes first, but, but we don't know. Um, so if you are modeling out your limitations, um, I mean, I would always kind of look at it both ways, right? S see which way you're going to be most limited and then check the other way and see what the impact is. Um, BEPS, not too much to say here other than 30% um, really is in um, the, recommend, the recommended limitation, although we are applying it to all taxpayers and not just corporations. One of the last things Eileen said, Krish, was uh, she made a comment about BEPS and the 30% limitation lining up with BEPS, but how, how does new 163J sure. compare to the rest of the world? Yeah, so I, I think she started to allude to it, but in broad strokes, I think it's very consistent with what was written up in the Action 4 report around the principles of having limitations based in part on some sort of an earnings measure. Uh, BEPS also offered alternatives. Action 4 off, um, uh, papers also offered an alternative of thinking about the balance sheet side. I know that was out there uh, in one of the versions earlier, but I think for most taxpayers, thankfully, that didn't make it through. Um, but I think in, in broad principles, I think consistency in terms of EBITDA being a base on which it's applied, I think that's consistent in a number of countries, Germany, Italy, a uh, number of other countries have an EBITDA-based uh, limitation. Um, the other part is, I think where it might be a little different is most of these uh, limitations we've seen in other jurisdictions tend to be focused on affiliated debt. Uh, here it is a little more expansive and it's looking at both affiliated and third-party debt, so that's a, there's a difference there. Um, I think in terms of uh, the range that we see, 30% um, is very popular. Uh, I think it was there in the example, so 30% is popular, but we've seen ranges from 30% to all the way to 50%, so a lot more generous. Uh, our old rule. Our old rule, fair enough. Uh, and, you know, Japan and a couple of others are there right now. South Africa somewhere in the middle. Um, and Germany and Italy, uh, you know, are, are in that 30% area. So I think uh, consistent, broadly speaking, I think it's a little more tight once we get to the EBIT limit in 2022 right. onwards, and it appears to be a little tighter, especially when it's then being applied on a third-party base. Uh, it starts to look a little more constraining, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, you, you, at the, at the uh, numbers discussion, you talked about how at different market caps we're going to see some different pressures right. right out of the gate. But the other place we see it is within industries. Mm -hmm. And there are some yeah. carve-outs within 163J. Um, but you're going to see some real pressures. Yeah, sector-specific differences, yeah. And other countries sometimes have an out mm -hmm. that if they can show that they are leveraged the same all the way through and it's you know, sort of proving that that's consistent with yeah. their industry. But this rule doesn't provide that. So there is yeah, no, no great point. Back. Yeah, like for Australia, for example, has kind of this arm's length test. It has some alternatives where you can look at a balance sheet safe harbor or you look at some sort of a limitation. And a number of other jurisdictions, not picking on Australia, but <laughs> a number of jurisdictions tend to have alternatives uh, where it's an or test between the balance sheet or the P&L and, and a commercial reasonableness test thrown in there as well for good measure. Uh, but here, you know, those alternatives are, are missing here a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, Rebecca. We're going to move <laughs> to interest expense limitation in the Treasury function, and there's a lot to talk about here as well. Certainly. And, um, you know, I think we saw from the results of the polling question that folks are uh, certainly considering all of their options in terms of how to deal with the public markets for the debt that they have outstanding as well as their intercompany debt. So we saw a, 
not completely even split, between refinancing debt offshore, retiring debt entirely, and living with the limitation. Um, and when we start looking at what companies are going to do as they interact with the capital markets, as an example, I think this puts a really clear picture around the fact that you, if you picture what a company is doing from an overall treasury function standpoint, there is what they do facing the market and how they sort of structure their debt ladder, which at least for outbound companies, I'll, I'll be a little bit outbound biased here for a second. Um, there was a lot of bias towards levering up in the United States uh, to fund your U.S. operations, to make investments as appropriate, to make acquisitions, and then having your operations offshore, recycling the cash that you have offshore in, in appropriate ways. Um, now where perhaps with the toll charge, there's the ability to repatriate some amount of cash um, without restriction, I think companies are looking seriously now about running the pre and post tax numbers around taking down a portion of their debt ladder entirely. Um, and if they're not going to delever, thinking about refinancing, restructuring, um, and certainly for years we've had companies, our, our largest companies, splitting where they laddered their debt with some of it being in the U.S. and some of it being offshore to begin with. I think there'll continue to be analytics around that to figure out what is the right mix based on both the business needs of the organization as well as what the market is going to support. Yeah, and I think I think the interesting observation, at least some early discussions with treasurers, is, okay, if you start with 163, you start to say, okay, let's start going offshore a little more. Right. And you go quickly to that that part of the uh, the equation and then you start to say, okay, what is the identification? Is the supply there offshore? Is the supply really here? Um, and then if you do as a U.S. parenthood group, if you're going offshore, uh, you have to bring in guarantees. So what does the guarantee do to each of these models? And so there's so and much 956. dynamic. Yeah, 956 <laughs> uh, comes in. Um, and so, I mean, I think observation one, which I'm surprised we've waited till this point in, in this webcast to mention it, the modeling is so dynamic <laughs> that, you know, things you consider for 163J uh, you know, can have a guilty impact that then makes you rethink whether that's the right equation. And for depending on your attributes, uh, even within a sector and in an industry, depending on your attributes, the right answer could be different. But definitely something where the treasurer and the tax team need to need Hold to coordinate uh, pretty pretty closely. And it's a great example of like we when we talk about modeling, oftentimes we sound like we're talking about tax modeling. Like for example, trying to figure out the 163J limitation, how that interacts with the local country limitation, and then I have to figure out the impact for beat and guilty and a host of other stuff. Mm -hmm. Fine. Then you have to get your treasurers involved to figure out they may like leverage. So for example, let's say the outcome from your tax calculation says pay off all of our debt and be done. Your treasurers may like leverage for a host of non-tax reasons. So balancing the needs of both groups is going to be important. I think another place where we're spending a ton of time is not just about what do you do facing the market, but what do you do with your cash internally? Um, and and I'll, I'll sum it up with a, an email I had forwarded to me that just said, okay, so uh, territorial has happened. That means I get to bring my entire cash pool onshore. Not, not quite. But I think it's causing companies to really think through where do they want their liquidity centered? Are there opportunities to have bigger bridges or more robust coordination between the U.S. Treasury Center and your offshore cash? Um, does the amount of your PTI shield create an ability to bring back more cash? Uh, on the flip side, uh, monitoring that is going to be a Herculean effort. So if you start, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, mixing your peanut butter and your chocolate and having some of your offshore cash coming back on shore and pooling with the U.S., you're going to need to have really robust processes around watching for 956, which was not repealed, uh, watching for 
um, whether you overstrip your PTI shield, um, basic foreign currency questions. Because right now, one of the ways that companies manage sort of not having their pools commingled is the U.S. does everything in U.S. dollars. So I know there's no foreign currency there. And my foreign treasury center is where I do the bulk of my foreign currency management. Once you start commingling, you may want to either start introducing foreign currency risk in the U.S. or you may start introducing U.S. dollar risk into your foreign treasury pool. Yeah, and Rebecca, I think from a TP perspective, a couple of conversations we've had, there's, there's both a day one issue and some of what you mentioned and then kind of a steady state or mm -hmm. day two issue. And I think on day one, you know, some of the conversations we've been having, and I know it's early days, um, the balances in, in offshore cash pools because of repat are changing in, in terms of 50 to 75% reduction Absolutely. in the cash pool balances in offshore centers. And that's a very significant number um, and there's the day one considerations of, okay, I just unwound this. And so what are all the terms and conditions under which I did this? What are the implications of the unwinding? Uh, and how do I explain the transition from a day one set of economics on these treasury centers right. to the day two and steady state model I might decide on? Uh, and this is where kind of, again, the foreign lens comes in. Treasury centers, the remuneration for cash pools, the return for these uh, entities has been contentious and controversial in a number of our European partners. Um, and now, uh, as we change these positions, we have to explain how in, during the course of this year, there was potentially no capitalization change, potentially no functional change, and yet a, a material change in the economics of these pools. Mm -hmm. um, and so the transfer pricing models that go with this uh, you know, have, have to see some good revisions, if you will. Absolutely. And, and I would be remiss before we move on to some of the other consequences, not to mention sort of the difference between notional pooling and physical pooling. I know that it's been a hot topic maybe in some of the other areas of tax reform, but I think there's a number of corporate treasurers who are starting to ask the question, and frankly, tax departments as well, for folks who've been in a notional pool on a sort of backward-looking basis where they're saying, in the new world, um, where I still care about look-through under 954C6, and I still care about where my interest deductions are, and I may have some incentives to put some leverage offshore, um, do I have different incentives now to do more of my pooling in-house and to move balances really between affiliates rather than use a bank to provide that service for me? And how does that compare if I need people and activities to do that if you're telling me my pool offshore is, re is reducing by 50 to 75%, do I want to do the ramp up and have the people offshore? Some additional considerations. We talked a little bit about foreign currency management, and I'll leave you with just the basic point that anytime you're changing either your external debt capitalization or your internal debt structures, your treasury teams and your financial accounting folks are going to be looking at the impact both on the underlying foreign currency gain or loss on the balances, as well as changing your hedging coverage. So once you change those, both location of where you hedge as well as how much you hedge, you need to update your tax hedging policies accordingly and make new assessments about what is going to be eligible for, say, the business needs exception for your offshore activities. Or frankly, if you're bringing more onshore, you're going to care about plain old, plain vanilla 1221 hedging identifications and matching the timing under our 446 principles, things that most multinationals haven't thought a ton about because their foreign currency risk is offshore. The last little bit is around investments. I think we've touched on a little bit the concept that 
the types of investments that are available to corporate treasurers and where those are going to be lo located long term is going to change. So if we accept uh, Chris's statement as fact, which I'm going to do for the balance of this discussion, and say that we think some quantum of assets is going to move from foreign treasury centers back into the U.S., there's going to be basic questions around, and then what? Do you retain the same kind of investment portfolio? Do you liquidate some of those investments? Most of our large corporate treasuries, uh, treasury centers end up looking like almost like a little uh, asset management firm within a larger corporate wrapper. And I think you'll see some fairly fundamental changes in the way that those investments are made, which means as the tax department, you're going to care about the accounting for those investments, whether gain or loss is realized, um, whether there are tax considerations on the movement of bringing them from offshore to onshore. Um, and corporate treasurers may have new and different points of views. I know spending a lot of time with our advisory colleagues, we focus quite a lot on the question of um, setting aside tax. Where do you want to be on sort of the yield curve? And our treasurers, now that they have some certainty about where cash is going to be deployed, are they able to go out a little bit longer out on the yield curve, get higher yielding investments? Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, that's going to generate a bunch more interest income in the United States, which is going to influence my calculation of adjusted taxable income for my 163J calculation. I think that's a perfect segue, I think, on, on, on the next slide. I think um, if we move on to... Um, you know, a relevant consideration, which I think we'll get into a little bit in the Feb 14th webcast. Mm -hmm. We've got this cash. What do we do with it, uh, you know, in terms of use for deals, M&A versus share buybacks and the implications that has. But I think we're going to cover some of that. Um, and then the final point on the operations itself, I think we alluded to some of these points already. But uh, another one where, uh, you know, I don't want to lose the non-U.S. lens on this one um, and, you know, considering what change in treasury operating model means, from the, means for the location of where the analysts are, where the treasury managers are, um, and supporting kind of the economics. There's a number of live controversies around these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, BEPS has some interesting things to say on return of capital versus people return to a funds-only center, and, we've, and, and U.S. companies have taken positions around that. Right. And how does that change, and how do you bridge that position versus what your position might look in two to three years? And, and just, I mean, to... To take a big step back, oftentimes those people who are working in your foreign treasury center, they're real people. And there's a change management aspect here as well, that if you fundamentally revamp your overall treasury management system and where your people are going to be, you may not have a mobile workforce that can move fluidly from one location to another. So it's all transfer pricing on a page for Krish, but oftentimes the people side of the move and having the right kind of change agility in the organization to do the things that tax would tell you on a plain sheet of paper will work is, is a big operational challenge. It's never transfer pricing on a piece of paper. It's always on a computer for credit. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, all right, so that takes us to our, our – we actually are going to have a bonus uh, polling question, but this is our last sort of uh, substantive question that goes for the CPE credit. And, and that is, have you worked with your treasury and capital markets groups uh, to start thinking about how you're going to approach the changes in 163J or caused by 163J? So we've got a yes, I have, a lot. Yes, to a little extent, no. Um, so if we get those responses. And while we're getting those responses, um, I'm going to ask, Eileen, one of the things that's pretty clear here from the conversations today is there's a lot of open questions, a lot of open questions. And the only place we're going to be able to look for guidance is regs, mm -hmm. notices. So far, we've got some 965 stuff. We've got a little bit on some other things, but we don't have anything on 163J. Right. Is Treasury going to give us some guidance here? 
We hope so. If anyone's listening, we need guidance. Um, yeah, there's been an indication um, that Treasury is going to issue guidance that 163J um, is up there on the priority list in terms of timing of when that guidance comes out. I don't, I don't know. Um, hopefully sooner rather than later, but Treasury has a lot on their plate right now. Um, to the extent guidance does not come out and you, you need you know, guidance, I, I recommend reaching out to your PwC team um, so we can all discuss um, your situation because your situation is probably not uncommon to somebody else's situation. Um, if, if you're finding yourself in a difficult fact pattern, there's probably somebody else and we've, you've probably seen it. So I always encourage you uh, to, to always reach out to somebody um, who can help. Um, you know, so something else is, so for those of you not familiar with old 163J because you just didn't, you didn't have uh, foreign related party payments, um, there, there are old, very old regulations that were issued under um, old 163J. They were proposed in 1991. They were never, um, they were never finalized to the extent you, or even made temporary um, to the extent you are looking at those, I mean, let, let's discuss that position to make sure it seems reasonable. Um, we, just, we just don't know at this point what um, deference the IRS or Treasury would give to those old regulations. Because they have said so this, is, this is a revision, Yeah, right? this is a revision. It's <laughs> not a repeal. It's a revision. Um, yeah. So uh, just a couple things to keep in mind as you move forward in your calculations. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.